Good morning, everyone. The sermon text for today is from the book of Mark, chapter 15, verses 33 through 41. Listen as I read God's word. This is the passage about the death of Jesus. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cries out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of them standing nearby heard this, they said, oh, listen, he's calling for Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it up to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah will come and take him down, they said. With a loud cry then, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. Some women were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, the younger, and of Joseph and Salome. In Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. Many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem were also there. And here ends the reading. Good morning, everyone. It's great to be with you again this morning. If I haven't had the chance to meet you, my name is John. I serve as the lead pastor here and would love to connect with you sometime this morning. As we come to this passage, I invite you to join me in a word of prayer. I love you, Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer. My God is my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield, and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I called to the Lord who is worthy of praise, and I have been saved from my enemies. The cords of death entangled me, the torrents of destruction overwhelmed me. The cords of the grave coiled around me, the snares of death confronted me. He reached down from on high and took hold of me. He drew me out of the deep waters. He rescued me from my powerful enemy, from my foes who were too strong for me. They confronted me in the day of my disaster, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a spacious place. He's rescued me because he delighted in me. Lord, today we give you thanks that you are a God who meets us in the disasters that we experience in life. Lord, you meet us in life when we feel like we are at the end of our rope. You meet us when we feel like we are entangled in death. And Lord, you have promised that you will be a stronghold. You have promised that you will be a comfort. You have promised that you will be a source of support and life in those moments. Lord, thank you for rescuing us from death, rescuing us from the pit of despair. As we look at this passage this morning, as we think about your death, Jesus, we pray that you, by your spirit, would help us see clearly 
Help us understand the significance of your death and what it means for us. Change us, we pray. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we live in a time where branding and logos are all around us. Uh, they're so commonplace that we simply don't even see how many, of them, how many of them there are around us. And not only do we just see logos and branding all around us, we also uh, at times take up certain branding and certain logos as a way of self-identification. So this is uh, very common if you think about someone who wears uh, the logo of their favorite sports team. What they're doing is they are signifying, I'm identifying with this team. This is my team. We also see it, uh, you can identify certain brands of clothing, right? Uh, and this, this is uh, maybe true of some of you. You have clothing that's a certain brand and it has the logo on the front of it. And typically, uh, you can learn something about a person by the logos that they wear. So someone wears Nike or Adidas or Under Armour, and typically, not always, but typically what that means is that that person is saying, I'm a sports person. I'm a athletics person. I'm a fitness person. And it's the choosing of those brands and those styles of clothes that identify you as, in some ways, that kind of a person. This is also true if you see someone wearing uh, uh, the North Face or Patagonia. Of course, those are just like really good brands overall uh, as far as quality goes, but typically that's communicating something about I'm an outdoorsy type of person. I'm a camper, I'm a hiker, I like to be outdoors, and so I need the kind of gear that's going to keep me safe outdoors in all kinds of weather and all kinds of situations. We see it when someone wears uh, the logo or the branding for the company that they work for. They're identifying themselves with that specific company that they work for. And so we, uh, we see these branding, and we see the logos all around us, and, and we even, not always, but we sometimes take up these brandings uh, as a way of identifying ourselves with a particular group, with a particular organization, or a particular lifestyle. Now, there's one sort of branding symbol that is, I think, the most unusual of them all, and that is the cross. Have you ever just stopped to think about the fact that you, you may see somebody in the grocery store who's walking around with a Roman torture device dangling around their neck? Have you ever stopped to think about how unusual it is? In the ancient world, the cross was the most dehumanizing, shameful, and degrading way that had been invented to kill someone until that point in time. And we see people walking around with it on jewelry and on t-shirts. And that's, I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I'm just pointing out, isn't that unusual? That this is, this is the symbol. As the early church began to form and identify themselves, what is the symbol that they chose to identify themselves? This Roman torture device. And so the question is, why did they choose that particular symbol? Why do we choose to wear that symbol? It's because we are identifying with what that symbol means, what the cross means. The reason the cross is the symbol for those who are followers of Jesus is because the cross is at the center of God's rescue plan. At the very center, the very heart of God's redemptive purposes that he's working out in the world is this Roman torture device. And as unusual, as strange as it may seem, this is the symbol that we cling to, that we love that we talk about. It's for us as followers of Jesus, not a source of 
discomfort necessarily. It's a, it's a source of life and hope. And so the question is, why is that? Well, this morning we're going to be talking specifically about the, the cross of Jesus. We've been in a series of messages where we're walking through the story of the gospel as it's laid out in Scripture, answering the question, what is this good news about Jesus? And every week we've been seeing a different sort of angle, a different facet of the good news about uh, the announcement of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection and ascension from the dead. And so we're looking today, we're going to spend our time focusing specifically on the cross of Jesus. And as we do, we're going to sort of uh, anchor the message today around two sort of big questions. The first question is, what did the death of Jesus accomplish? And the second question is, how exactly did it accomplish it? That's what we're going to see in our passage today. So that first question then we come to is, what exactly did the death of Jesus accomplish? Now, if you were to look at different passages of Scripture, you would see different areas of the Bible filling in different uh, parts of this. Uh, what, what we see in Mark here today is not everything the Bible says about the answer to this question, but to focus in on this specific question here today, we can answer it like this. The death of Jesus accomplished release from captivity and access to the Father. That's what Mark here in chapter 15 tells us the death of Jesus accomplished. It accomplished release from captivity and access to the Father. Now, earlier this year, we did a, uh, a message series in the book of Exodus. And one of the things that we uh, said over and over, trying to sort of reiterate this because of the significance of it, is that the goal of the Exodus was twofold. The goal of the Exodus was to release God's people out of slavery in Egypt, but also, secondly, to bring them into the presence of God. So the Exodus was not complete until the people were free from Pharaoh and in the presence of God. So it didn't really do the Hebrew people any good for God to simply uh, destroy their enemies and let them wander the desert aimlessly by themselves. The goal of the Exodus was a transfer of ownership. So the Hebrew people are no longer owned by, they're no longer living under the tyranny of Pharaoh. They are now in relationship with Yahweh, living under his gracious rule and authority. So that's the goal of the Exodus. This is exactly, Mark tells us here, what the cross of Jesus accomplished. So that same thing, the release from captivity and access to God's presence is exactly what Mark tells us the death of Jesus did. So Mark tells us the death of Jesus accomplished our release from captivity. This, uh, this portion of the, the book of Mark is saturated with Exodus-type imagery. I'm not going to spend any time talking about Jesus eating the Passover meal with his disciples. We'll just rush past that and come to this passage where in verse 33 we read, At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So the first thing we see here is darkness comes over the whole land. We know that there's some sort of deeper theological meaning to the darkness because it doesn't just randomly get dark in the middle of the day for only three hours. And as we read scripture, as we look at the Old Testament in particular, we see that darkness is a sign of God's judgment. So for example, in the book of Amos, chapter 8, verse 9, we read, In that day, declares the Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. So speaking of the coming judgment of God, it's described using language of utter darkness. And here in Jesus' 
life, we see darkness coming over the whole land. And so what that should clue us into is that there is some kind of cosmic judgment, some kind of cosmic justice is taking place in the darkness. But not only do we see the darkness coming over the whole land, we also see in verse 33, or 37 rather, the text says, with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. That may not seem like it's all that important of a thing, you know, what can you squeeze out of that verse? (laughs) But just remember what the rest of the New Testament says about Jesus' identity. Jesus is the firstborn son of God. So just put this together here with with the imagery of the Exodus. So in the first Exodus in the Old Testament, we see that there was darkness that came over the whole land. There was the death of the firstborn. And remember that Pharaoh was known in that time as a god. So Pharaoh's son would have been known as a son of God, lowercase g. And as a result of the darkness coming over the land, as a result of the death of the firstborn, the people were set free. So notice the, the connection here, where we see the, the last two plagues in the Exodus were darkness coming over the whole land, the death of the firstborn, and the result of that is that the people are set free. And then we come to Mark. And Mark says, as Jesus was hanging on the cross, darkness came over the entire land of Palestine. And the firstborn son of God, capital G, died. And what are we supposed to gather took place next? The captives are set free. (laughs) So do you see how everything that the Exodus shows us as sort of sets that pattern, we see coming to Jesus, and and Mark is very clearly here communicating to us that what happened in the Exodus is now taking place in Jesus, but it's a greater Exodus. It's a greater act of deliverance that's now taking place in Jesus. We're no longer just freed from a kind of circumstance, no longer freed from just circumstances, although those are important. There's something deeper. There's a greater kind of deliverance that's taking place. We are no longer slaves, not just of Pharaoh or some other earthly leader. We are released from our captivity to sin and death and the evil one. So what Mark is showing us here is that the death of Jesus accomplished release from captivity. But not only this, it accomplished access to the Father. Notice in verse 38, The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. So Jesus breathes his last, and the temple curtain was torn in two. The temple curtain was the curtain that separated the most holy place in the tabernacle, where God's presence dwelled, from the rest of the tabernacle complex and from the rest of the world. And that curtain, as soon as Jesus died, was torn in two. Now remember that there was only one person who could go into the most holy place, into the presence of God, and that person could only go in there one time per year. And that was the high priest. And now this curtain is torn in two, and what Mark is showing us by giving us that detail is that the, the moment Jesus breathed his last, the job of the high priest became obsolete. The moment Jesus breathed his last, the guy lost his job <laughs> because there is no longer any need for the curtain anymore. 
There's no longer any need for the high priest because in the Old Testament, the people all had a mediated access to God. Only one person, only the high priest could go in one time per year. It's like if you were to go to some Fortune 500 company and you were to take the elevator all the way up to the executive CEO suite, you could not just walk up there and knock on the door and ask to be seen. There will be probably security up there. There will certainly be a a giant desk with an executive assistant in front of it that's going to mediate your access to that CEO. In the same way, the people of God did not have, in the Old Testament, direct access to God's presence. It was a mediated access through the high priest. And what Mark is showing us with the tearing of the temple curtain is that that is now changed. Whereas there used to be a high priest who is the mediator between humans and God, now Jesus is the one who is our mediator. And through Jesus, the greater high priest, we now have access to God, our Heavenly Father. And so do you see how in the Exodus, the goal of that first Exodus was to release the people from captivity and to bring them into the presence of God. And now you have Jesus who dies, and Mark tells us his death releases us from our captivity, and it gives us access to our Heavenly Father. So what Mark is showing us in this passage is he's showing us what the death of Jesus accomplishes. It grants us access, it grants us freedom, release from captivity. But not only does we see this, what the death of Jesus accomplished, the next question that we have to sort of think about is, okay, well, how did the death of Jesus accomplish it? How did Jesus suffering and dying on a cross actually free us from our captivity? How did it actually grant us access to God the Father? Well, here's how. In Jesus, God absorbed the sting of our sin and gave up his right to get even. In Jesus, God absorbed the sting of our sin. Earlier in this message series, we did a whole message on uh, just looking at who God is, his nature, his character. And the thing that we highlighted was the triune nature of God. That God is one God who exists in three distinct, unique individual persons, each of whom is equally and eternally God. That may seem, uh, for a lot of people, like something that uh, PhDs like to sit around and argue about. You know, most people are like, okay, that's cool, like I'm glad someone's thinking about that, but why in the world do I, for any reason in my life, need to have any grasp of understanding on what the Trinity is? This is one of those moments where the Trinity is absolutely essential. Because without the Trinity, if we lose the Trinity, the cross is turned into an act of cosmic injustice. Let me give an illustration that may help sort of bring this together. I want you to imagine that you are, uh, you've gone out with some friends or with your family for an evening. You are with people that you dearly love, you deeply care about. You go out to dinner, you go out to do some other fun activity, you're on your way back home, you're cruising down the road, you pass through an intersection, and someone who's coming the side direction is going way too fast, They're driving while intoxicated, and they just clobber you. They T-bone the car that you're in, and everybody in that car except for you dies. You're the lone survivor. Now imagine that you muster up the courage to go to the sentencing, because the guy who drove the car actually survived too. And so you muster up the courage to go to that sentencing 
for this person who's going to be charged with four counts of negligent homicide, and you sort of sit in the back and you're trying to remain a little bit uh, unnoticed and you're trying to just keep your emotions in check as you're watching the sentencing, and the judge comes back with a verdict that this person is going to spend the rest of their life in prison for what they did. At that moment, someone that you've never met before, who's just sitting out there in the courtroom, stands up and says, Judge, I would like to go to prison and take this person's punishment for them. I know that they committed the crime, but you know, I would like to take their prison sentence. I will go to prison for the rest of my life if you let them go free. And the judge says, to your surprise, I'm going to allow this. And the person who killed your family or who killed your friends walks out the door and serves no time at all for the crime they committed. Is there any of you who, if you were that person, would feel like justice has been served? Not even a little bit. In fact, you would be furious if that happened. That that person who did that gets off the hook because somebody else randomly gets thrown in their place? This is why the doctrine of the Trinity is so important. Because what we see at the cross is not God the Father finding some random person, any random person off the street, and just kind of shoving them in front of the bus of his justice. Shoving someone else in the place of judgment instead of us. What we see is God himself, who took on human flesh, who accompanied us in our humanity. God himself went to the cross and suffered and died in our place, which means what's happening at the cross is not God randomly punishing some other person instead of you. What's happening at the cross is that God himself, in the person of Jesus, is absorbing the sting. He's absorbing the pain of our sin into himself. That's what's happening at the cross. Now, another way to say this is not only that he absorbed the sting of our sin, but what this means is that God gave up his right to get even. You may have heard someone before who asked the question, can't God just forgive? Why is there all this stuff in the Bible about there has to be death and there has to be sacrifice and there has to be judgment? Can't God just simply forgive? Can't he just let it go? And sometimes it can feel as though God is kind of petty, right? He's holding a grudge against us. He just won't let it go. It's not that he can't. He won't let it go. Somebody has to pay. Why can't God just forgive? Can't God just forgive? And the answer to that is no. And you can't either. I've been really helped by a pastor named Tim Keller in, in, in sort of processing this. If, if you have been deeply wronged by somebody, if somebody has hurt you, if someone has, if your spouse has cheated on you, if someone has taken advantage of you, if you have been deeply hurt and wronged, you can't just forgive. Forgiveness for wrongs that are deep will always cost something. When someone deeply sins against you, what you can do, there's two options you have. Number one, you can make them pay. You can get back at them. You can get even with them. 
you can hold it against them. You can hold it over them. At every opportunity, you will bring it up. You will hold it over them. You will remind them. You will try and trash the reputation. You'll try and trash them. You will make them pay. You'll find ways to make them pay. That's one option when you've been deeply wronged. The other option is who pays? You pay. Either you make them pay or you pay. And for someone who's been deeply, deeply wronged, it will cost you something to forgive them. Forgiveness is never free. It will cost you. What it will cost you is your right to get even. Every time you want to think about it, every time you want to dwell on it, every time you want to rub it in their face, every time you want to make them remember what they've done to you, and you choose to give up your right to get even and choose not to do that, that costs you something. Forgiveness is never free. Forgiveness will always cost somebody. It will cost the person who offended or it will cost the person who's been offended. But sin and deep wounds, forgiveness is never free. It will always cost us something. We see in Jesus, God himself suffering on the cross, absorbing the pain of our sin into himself. And in doing so, he gave up his right to get even. We have deeply wronged and sinned against our creator. And in Jesus, God has given up his right to get even. In Jesus, God has absorbed the sting, he's absorbed the pain of our sin into himself. So as we think about the good news of the gospel as it relates to the death of Jesus, we could say it like this, good news. In Jesus, God has defeated death by dying for us. That's the heart of it. God has defeated death by dying for us. Death came into the world as a result of our rebellion against God. Remember that first command that God gave to Adam and Eve. You can eat from any tree here except one. And in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. They chose to disobey God's instruction. They revolted against him. They chose to believe the lie that he was holding back on them, that he's stingy, that he doesn't have their best interests in mind. And so they partook of the fruit of that tree. And a kind of death was unleashed into the world. They didn't die physically in that moment, but there was a deeper kind of death that took place inside of them, and a deeper kind of death that was unleashed into the world. Something worse than physical death happened to them. At the soul level, at the heart level, there was a spiritual death that was unleashed into the world. And even worse than their physically dying was that they are exiled from God in relationship. The God who is a source of life, the God who is their creator, their sustainer, the one who loves them, who's given them an identity and a calling and a purpose, they're now exiled from him. They're estranged from him in relationship. They're exiled because of their sin. And every single human since that time, all of us, are a kind of spiritual stillborn the moment we come into the world. The moment we come into the world, we are dead on arrival, spiritually speaking. 
our hearts from day one are exiled from God in relationship until God does something, until God would intervene, until God would step in and rescue us from that death and from the poison of sin that was unleashed into the world. Until God steps in, until God does something, we are spiritually dead. We experience that worse than death kind of spiritual death. But the good news is that he died so that we could be released from our captivity. Jesus suffered and died and rose again from the dead, proving that he has authority over sin and death. And by being united to him in faith, we have the same assurance that death holds no claim over us. That the power of sin, that the consequences of sin that hang over us no longer have any power over us. Jesus died so that we could be released from our captivity and be no longer slaves to sin, no longer slaves to death. But also he was exiled so that we could have access to the Father. Jesus was taken outside the city, outside the city of God, was executed unjustly as a criminal so that those of us who come to him and trust him by faith could be brought back into the family of God, could be brought back into relationship with our Heavenly Father. That's what the death of Jesus accomplishes. When we see who Jesus is and what he's done for us, our hearts ought to well up in thankfulness and praise and gratitude because in Jesus, we have forgiveness. In Jesus, we have redemption, we have restoration, we have healing, we have renewal. And certainly we experience that only in part now, but we have the guarantee, we have the promise that one day when Jesus returns, death will be finally defeated and will have no claim over us. And so we can live every day in joyful hope for that moment. We can live every day believing that we do not have to give in. We do not have to be reduced to just a ball of desires, whatever desire is strongest at the moment. We don't have to live that way. In Jesus, we have been freed, not only from the power of sin, not only from its, from its condemnation, from its judgment that was held over us, but we don't have to obey anymore. We don't have to follow sin anymore. We don't have to live that way. We've been, we've been freed. And so that's the good news of the gospel, is that God has defeated death. He's done it by dying, and he's released us from our captivity, brought us back into the presence of God. We now have access to our Heavenly Father, and that's good news. Amen? As we come to the communion table today, we do so to remember and to celebrate what God has done for us in the person of Jesus. As we come forward today to receive the elements, we take in our hands the broken body of Jesus and the shed blood of Jesus, and we are reminded that Jesus suffered and died so that we could be set free. And we get to celebrate and remember that today. And as we do, I want to invite you to take a few moments of quiet reflection and confession as we come to the table.
Merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you. We've sinned against you in our thoughts, our words, and our deeds, by the things that we have done as well as by the things that we have left undone. We confess that we have not loved you with our whole heart, mind, and strength, and we have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We pray, Lord, in your mercy that you would forgive what we have been, that you would help us amend what we are, and that you would direct what we shall be so that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your holy name. Amen.